Welcome to Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week, like all weeks, by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hi. Hi. And Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan. Uh, Baruch Hashem. What did that mean? What did you say to us? Hello to you. Hello to you. Don't you speak coexistence, Mark? I don't no. Later in the show, we'll be talking with Sholem Dean, whose memoir, All Who Go Do Not Return, is kick-ass. I'll just leave it at that for now. And our guest Gentile, or as Colin McEnroe asked to be called on last week's episode, Token Goy or Goykin, Jason Gay of The Wall Street Journal, who has a new advice book out. But look, this is the first show back after our road trip to New Haven. Many of you heard the podcast we recorded at Yale. What you don't know is that afterwards, I had the crew back to my house where uh, Liel and Stephanie and our ace producer, Julie, had New Haven-style pizza with all the Oppenheimer kids, the wife, the dogs. And I, I just wanted to know if it was... Was it everything you expected it would be? You forgot to mention the cat. The cat. Did you, did you meet the, the cat? Yeah, the cat Franny. An amazing cat. Franny won't come upstairs. Franny's so afraid of the house and the dog. Franny, we just got Franny recently, and uh, Franny is not assimilated to the household culture well. Uh, dear listeners, by, by kids, uh, Mark Oppenheimer does not mean one or two. Mark Oppenheimer means four. And if you want to imagine it, try to imagine Little Women as directed by Wes Anderson. It's like incredibly <laughs> precocious kids in this like idyllic setting, you know, painting you beautiful portraits of you and, and reading you books and having you read them books. It's just insufferably adorable. Um, Leo, which of, which of my kids is marrying Hudson? Um, that's a great question. So um, Hudson is my, my son, who's two years old. I think uh, Anna Ruth is is a natural yeah, candidate. She's so cute. Oh, she's, Those she's, blonde curls. You know, insufferably cute. Uh, but Clara, who's four, five, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also five. Five. also is a fantastic candidate uh, for that. Uh, we need to work out the you know financials. The financials, that's exactly. <laughs> Usually, Wait, my family has to come with the money, right? That's a, that's oh, very true. Christ, uh, but you I'll, know, we'll, I'll we'll, this is actually a very appropriate segue. Uh, to our first bit of news of the Jews, which is that JDate has purchased JSwipe. And as you recall, we talked about this on one of our first shows. JSwipe is the Tinder for Jews where you just swipe left or swipe right. It's purely based on looks. Don't you feel we kind of did that? And yeah, we, we it's came kind in, of our work. We came in early and said this lawsuit where JDate is suing JSwipe for use of the J, like that's not that's not Shalom Bite. That's not yeah, just merge. It's not love in the Jewish home. And they've now merged, which is J Date has taken over J Swipe. Um, so what should we get from this shidduch? We get to use the J. We get- We're J cast. <laughs> from we now get on, we'll be, be the J cast. We will be known as J. I wanted to call us the Jew cast. I remember, yeah. but yeah, there was, was objection that that was somehow tacky because otherwise we're all class, right? Yeah. But like that crossed some sort of line. We're, we're, we're dripping with class. We're dripping with class. So in the news of the Jews, J Date purchased J Swipe, which means you have one stop shopping for all of your horny Jew needs. Uh, Larry David went on Saturday Night Live to become their new Bernie Sanders. Uh, Israel and NASA have announced a joint space exploration partnership, and stuff in Israel is just really, really bad. But they are going to space. I like it. It's like, but. Things aren't great here. Let's just go to space. And the Palestinians have already claimed that it was theirs before (laughs) the Jews got there. More importantly, we really have to talk about this video making the rounds. If you were a Jew with Jewy Facebook friends, you could not miss the video, I'm That Jew. A six-minute, yes, six-minute video, which which is like biblical time in viral videos. Yeah, this uh, is like the Shoah of viral videos. <laughs> it never ends. Yeah. Uh, it's by Israeli blogger Eitan Chetayat. If you say so. Okay. It begins, I'm that always writing Jew, that footnote citing Jew, that academic Jew, scholar Jew. Here, have a listen. The thinking Jew. And let me tell you something, Jew. Worker Jew, white-collar Jew, that tend the flock and herd a Jew. 
that calloused foot and hand Jew, that roamed the barren sands Jew, that tills and works the land Jew, that old Jew, new Jew, that makes the desert grow Jew. And as the host of it intones that academic Jew, that blonde Jew, that Sammy Davis Jew, they show pictures of Jews, 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 Bob Dylan, Elena Kagan, Jack Black, Alan Greenspan, Ed Koch, of all people. Like, Jews we'd rather forget were Jewish. How dare you, sir? bringing them back. But like Shia LaBeouf. Is he Jewish? Yeah, but it's like, why? What? I didn't even even know that. And I'm a professional Jew. Natalie, Randy Macho Man Savage. Mark Spitz. Jeremy Piven as Ari Gold. Uh... There's a New York Nick. Who the hell is that New York Are Nick? Are you kidding? Amari. Amari's Amari Jewish? Amari No, he, he claims Jewish roots oh, okay. and he is probably the best Jew because he goes to Israel. He's getting Israeli citizenship. He's a better Jew than all of us. So so my question is, why is this so... I, I find this truly awful. It's like painful to watch. And it, it actually has created this gulf between me and so many of my Facebook friends who believe that it's like after owning World of Our Fathers and Exodus on your bookshelf, this is the next thing you have to have to possess to be a good Jew is this this little blurblet of Facebook Jewish pride. It's like a funny, it's an unfunny version of the Hanukkah song, right? The Adam Sandler song is like, <laughs> you know, Mark Spitz, he's a Jew, also a Jew, some other people who are Jews. It's like, dude, at least find funny rhymes. But he, it's also just like so earnest, it makes me cringe. Yeah. I mean, that level of like, he's like, I'm that, like the footnote citing Jew is Elena Kagan. Like, and be, to be honest, I only made it about like two minutes and 18 seconds into the video, which I think... Like you can't it's way too long, yeah. but it's it's I think it's just like this obsession with showing who's Jewish. Like we are obsessed with saying, like, look at this person, this random person you don't recognize on the screen. He's Jewish, too. It's like that old apocryphal line that sometimes gets attributed to Herzl, but nobody knows if it was said and if so, by whom that, you know, when there are Jewish cops arresting Jewish horrors, we'll truly know that we have our own country. It's like, look, we have we have the best people and the worst people. We're real people. Oh, yeah. Bernie Madoff is like that Judas Jew. And it's like. All right. Can we just like leave? Like, let's just, you know, let's just leave him out of the video. But I think, I mean, it's in response to what's going on. And so he's sort of saying, like, I'm that. And, he, you know, he shows the United Nations and he's sort of like, also, I'm like that at Jew. six minutes oh at that God. length, it would have been quicker and easier. Just make a video of all the people who weren't Jewish. <laughs> it's like Barack Obama. He's not a Jew. Mahmoud Abbas. Mahmoud Abbas. Not, also a not a Jew. Not a Jew. <laughs> well, it's it's Will I Am's Yes, We Can video with the sort of yeah, the vamp in the background mushed with the Hanukkah song put on Facebook. Without any of the things that make those things cool. <laughs> right, without yeah. good music or actual wit. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and really long. Yeah. But speaking of actual wit, James Franco became a bar mitzvah two weeks ago, but only last week did he have the party. It was apparently sponsored by Seth Rogen, but also by the website Funny or Die, but also by Hilarity for Charity, which raises money for Alzheimer's. There was a mock bris, the rock singers, do they say Chaim? Chaim. They say, yeah. But is there a, is it a chet? It's Haim. It's Haim. Like, yeah, that's so The rock singers Haim sang Hava Nagila. Miley Cyrus sang Shout while wearing a Star of David. And I'll just say, as somebody who once spent a year going to bar and bat mitzvahs as a journalistic slash masochistic enterprise, that um, here's the thing about the bar mitzvah party, right? On the one hand, people forget that the bar mitzvah is by tradition considered a seudat mitzvah. It's a commanded meal. You're supposed to, it's like a wedding. You're actually supposed to party, right? It's like the idea of having a really subdued, genteel, like backyard, uh, you know, poetry reading in honor of your alt-lefty bar mitzvah is actually not in keeping with the tradition. Good, because that sounds terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not going to say who I know who did that. It's supposed it to be. You? It's supposed to be raucous, and so in that sense, it's actually very, 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 very Jewish. You know why Miley Cyrus had to be there? 
I don't. Oh, oh, why does Miley Cyrus okay. have to come be anywhere? On come on, of course now. she has to be there. But I think so. Miley has basically, to be everywhere. If I may explain what happened, um, as the resident young person on this panel, oh, it's exhausting. Um, so hilarity for charity is Seth Rogen and his wife, um, Lauren Miller Rogen, their foundation to uh, it raises money for. Alzheimer's among young people. I love how you say like this, Lauren Miller. It already sounds like she's the worldwide president of Hadassah. No, she's amazing. <laughs> like, she's a writer. And Lauren she's, Miller she's in, um, for a good time call. She's in that movie with Ari Grainer. She's amazing. Um, so basically, this to me just means that bar mitzvahs have jumped the shark. Like if James Franco's <laughs> doing it, Auntie, like raising money, you're like, okay, all right, enough. But After then, a you know, thousand have, years, bar mitzvahs have yeah. jumped the shark. They had a good thousand like, year run thanks, since James the Middle Franco Ages. Ruined it for us, but. Yeah, but I, mean, see, I think you have it exactly wrong. You know, here's the thing. You're right. It's you're commanded to party, but when you're 13, your idea of what a party is is completely messed up. Like 13 year olds should not plan a party. When you're 32, you're like, I know, uh, Miley Cyrus in a really tight outfit. And holding a star of David, and on like her. that's a party. <laughs> like bar mitzvah should be when you're 32. Which let's face it, you don't really become a man until then anyway. Like why don't you yeah, move the date? Yeah, no one's becoming a man at 13. No, no one. No one's becoming a man at 30. Let's just do it at like around 35, and everyone could have like Miley Cyrus. 31, and you could switch. I love around. that. Exactly. Wait, Leal, I love that your idea of what a 35 year old wants for bar mitzvah <laughs> is a 20 year old in in you know her weird spandex spandex Mark, outfit. Mark, uh, pull every American man who <laughs> isn't can you. We, can we just talk and about 85 percent? Of us saying Miley Cyrus and I have, Sandex. I have no interest in Miley Cyrus. The most important thing was, there, was a fake circumcision, and Jeff Goldblum performed it. And Zach Efron voiced uh, James Franco's junk. No offense to Israel, but this is kind of why America's the promised land for Jews. I mean, is it, it? it is. This is because here, this is where we get like <laughs> undereducated 20 year olds in spandex who badly want to play Jew for the night. I know, and it's so hard to, to like listen to people talking about like the struggles of Jews in America, and it's like, Look at this. Like, people thought this was funny. I mean, people, like, they raised $2.5 million from this bar mitzvah. Like, what did your bar mitzvah do? Last week, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote in The New Yorker about school shootings as a phenomenon of mob mentality, which is the first person who breaks the glass uh, is some sort of sociopath. But by the hundredth person, it's just people following the crowd. Leal Leibowitz then wrote a piece for Tablet offering a similar theory about the knife-wielding pogromist in Israel. Do you want to say a little bit about that, Leo? Yeah. I mean, imagine that everyone in America loved school shootings. Imagine that every time there's a school shooting, you know, both the president and Rush Limbaugh and Fox News and Hillary Clinton and everyone would just go on air and say, you know, those kids who shot up the school are martyrs and heroes and they represent the best of our youth. You would see a lot of school shootings because school shootings then become this tradition that people join. And I think it's very much the same thing with what we're seeing with the Palestinian stabbing wave now. There's really no profile of who the stabbers are. They come from various places. Some of them are Palestinians. Some of them are Israeli Arabs. Some of them are women. Many of them are women. Some of them, many of them are very well off with jobs and nice cars and, you know, prospects in life. And you ask, you know, why would anyone do something so insane? And and you think there must be some sort of, you know, coherent ideological motive. And, And to an extent, there probably is. But to a large extent, I think when Every time you go on Facebook, literally everything you see is stab the Jew, stab the Jew, stab the Jew, stab the Jew. And everyone around you glorifies this. And, and more and more and more people actually go out and do this. Well, then you go out and do it, too. It's a normative thing to do. But here's my question about that. Um, they pretty much know that after they stab the Jew, just as the school shooters know that after they shoot up the school, they're going to get killed. 
So it's, it is – I'm not saying that there's nothing to that theory, but it's not a fully satisfying theory because where is this surplus of people who are essentially suicidal? You're the exception to the rule, but I think most young men don't necessarily think about the consequences of their actions. If if they did, you know, drunk well, driving as, and or unprotected sex would, would be a far less common But as phenomenon. you yourself wrote, I mean, one of the stabbers was an educated graduate, a woman in her 20s, educated, educated graduate of the Technion, fully right. framed, fully formed brain, not a 16-year-old testosterone-filled man, you know, and she knew I'm going out to die. Well, she's actually an interesting case. There's been a theory, and I've, I've written about this also in, in the piece, there's been a theory about her that... For her, it was actually just because of mental issues, and it was a form of suicide by cop. She actually didn't want to stab Jews. She just wanted to die. She wanted someone to shoot her. Uh, but for many others, uh, you know, in this current wave of violence, I think, A, you don't think about it. B, if you think about it, you say, well, you know, then I'm a shaheed. Then I'm going to go to heaven because I'm going to be a hero. Right. I'm, I'm going to be a martyr. I'm going to be a hero of my people. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. The, the most troubling thing about the stabbings is how personal they are. I mean, you're not just putting a bomb. Obviously, bombs do more damage, but like you're going after someone and stabbing them. That is such a, an intimate act. And yeah. you're not going to stab that many people before you get caught. No. I mean, I think that that's the reality. Right. It's a fad, right? It's going to subside. Like school just, shootings, yeah. right? But I mean, the creepy thing about the Gladwell piece is that these people don't fit this profile that we once thought, no. like these psychopathic there's, there's kids. There's no profile. It's like, a kid who sort of like gets obsessed with these guys on social. He sees them on, you know, they're, they're he like there's journals and stuff online mm-hmm. just about all these like the that glorify the you know the original Columbine killers. It's it like this culture of it's like zine worship. That's the thing. And, and Mark, to, to your question, like assume there's only a really small part of any society who actually would go out and do these things, which I think is true, you know, regardless of the society. But instead of sort of fighting this and trying to isolate and curb it. You fan it. So, you know, the kid who's a little bit suicidal, the kid whose girlfriend just dumped him, the kid who's just been passed over for a promotion at work, all these malcontents have a really, really, really glorious path to, you know, self-empowerment by stabbing someone. It's horrible. We've been getting so much amazing mail that we're still planning our whole show, talking with listeners and answering their questions. That is coming up soon. You have to send us your mail at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. We got a letter this week, though, that I really wanted uh, to answer on the air uh, this week. It couldn't wait. This was from Matt Fieldman. Uh, Hey, Liel, I'm a huge fan of your taste in hip hop, both American and Israeli. Can you talk about who you're loving these days from the hip hop scene and make some recommendations? Oh, wow. You asked this uh, unprepared. You know, I'm 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 going to completely dedicate my answer to one name. If you have not yet listened to an Israeli hip hop artist by the name of Nechi Nech, uh, you should do so right now. You should go to SoundCloud.com and type in Nechi Nech, which is which is spelled N-E-C-H-I, N-E-C-H. Um, the great big promise of Israeli hip hop, a magnificent lyricist a fantastic artist who would make you very, very, very happy and proud. So thank you for this question, and and thank you, Nechi, for uh, making tremendous Israeli hip-hop. Our Jewish guest today is a really Jewish guest. Like, he, he, he did his time. Uh, Sholem Dean, he's author of the memoir, All Who Go, Do Not Return, which is about uh, his membership in and departure from the very, very religious 
Sphera community outside New York City. And he's now a board member at Footsteps, which is an organization that offers assistance to those who have left the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. Welcome, Sholem. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to be a, a kind of pathetic fanboy and say I loved your book. Oh, well... I love being here. Don't I'm, you love I'm meeting people this. who love your book? The book, the book is a masterpiece. It's really fantastic. Yeah, well, you guys are are very very kind. And th- there's this tradition, and we've written about this at Tablet of these what are loosely called OTD, off the derech, off the path books. People right. who have, who are religious and then strayed. But I mean, the interesting thing is that you didn't start off that as religious as that community you went into. You sort of descended into it and then rose back out. Oh, I was super religious when I grew up. I mean, I, I was. We were sort of kind of. Satmer. That was like the closest community we were aligned with. Um, and so I left the Satmers and went to a place that even the Satmers call too far gone, like way too fanatic. Um, and that was the Skveras. But I, we were we were hardcore. Maybe just, um, so the, the book, it, it ends on a very sad note, which is there's, you leave and there's divorce and, and you're estranged. Your, your, your ex doesn't let you see your children, basically, right? Yeah. Is that where yeah. we are? Um, that is where we are, although I wouldn't say that I'm as sad now as uh, as where the book, book leaves off. Um, I felt that the book has to end on a sad note because that's really the story. The story ends sadly. It doesn't necessarily mean that I am sad every day now. I'm, I'm in fact, not sad. I've, I, I've you know, I, I've had time to process things, and it's not the way, um, you know, the very last image in the book is kind of a... Uh, you know, was is meant to give you that kind of feeling that there was a tremendous sense of loss here, and and there is that sense of loss. But you know, my children are alive and well, and I am alive and well, and um, well, you know, things things can and almost certainly will change. So, what I wanted to know was if that kind of what we could call extreme religion, you know, s- centered around a charismatic rebbe, a charismatic kind of almost cultishly revered leader was not the place you wanted to end up. Do you think that for some people it's exactly the right place? In other words, do you have a kind of disdain in general for that level of religious observance? Or do you feel like, oh, it's just, it was not the place I wanted to spend my life? Yeah, I don't. I don't I don't discount the possibility that for some people that's good. I, I think there's a problem with how some of it is executed. Um, in New Square, for instance, they in much of the Hasidic world, there is what I call the unholy trifecta of depriving boys of secular education, and this primarily affects boys. This, by the way, happens uh, throughout America <laughs> in secular schools. We're yes. depriving everyone. But it's different. Yeah. But it's different. I mean, I have two two boys, uh, 14 and 16. They cannot speak, read, and write English. They know the alphabet. That's pretty much it. Right? I think that's a level that, that goes a little bit beyond public schools failing. Um, but depriving boys of secular education... Um, and sort of pressuring kids, teenagers, to get married and then not telling them anything about birth control encouraging them to have large families. Uh, and then you have a young man who's like 23, 24 with three kids and he has to go out and provide for them and he has no skills. Uh, and, you know, he'll soon have my friends my age. They have 12, 14 kids um, and they can barely speak, read, or write English. What do they do? How do they make a living? They find jobs. Some of them work at B and H, the photo store. In, yeah, 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 in New York City, that's having some labor issues right now. Yeah, I saw something about that. Um, some of them start their own businesses. Uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Some of them are successful, and some of them, uh, I would say, the vast majority of them struggle, really struggle. Find jobs here and there. Work as teachers in school. Uh, 
They they work the cash register in the local supermarket. They, you know, uh, Shulm, here's here's a crazy thing. So so I, I I read your book, which you know again I think is magnificent and it's kind of mind blowing. All, all of our readers it's more than magnificent. Should, it's, it's, should should buy it today yeah. and buy copies for friends and family members. Um, and yet, you know, he, here's 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 like a, a a current that runs to the back of my mind, and I'm, I'm I'm feeling all the things that you want me to feel. Right, I'm feeling the the the, the terrible sense of isolation, the the struggle, uh, the sense of loss for your kids. But I'm I'm also thinking to myself, you know, here I am, <laughs> working a job or jobs, uh, you know, struggling with making a living. Uh, you know, I, I have a decent education, but uh, Nothing out there is particularly easy, and and here's this community in which you know you describe this coming back from the hospital with your first kid, which is something I still remember vividly, and all these people are there with food, and there's a sense of warmth and support, and and mornings and Shabbats, like everything is very communal. And I'm thinking to myself, or I can't help thinking to myself at the back of my mind, hey, this is there's there's a logic to this. Is that crazy to you? I don't think it's crazy at all. And if you would like to become part of the Square community, I can hook you up. <laughs> you can hook me up. <laughs> They'll have you. I think he's the yeah. only one yeah, coming that with book your had this recommendation. <laughs> I that, think yes. that will carry me a long way. Well, put me in that house right in the right. end of the street. But seriously speaking, I I think there. Uh, you know, I've been out of the the Hasidic world now for eight years, um, and I have some serious critiques about the secular world. And one of them is how little. Uh, we care for people and how difficult it is for people to find community. Um, look, you walk down any street in Manhattan, you see homeless people. You, in New Square, you don't see homeless people. In New Square, if somebody is in shul at 11 o'clock at night and looks like he doesn't have a place to go, somebody's going to come over to him and say, uh, excuse me, Rebid, do you have a place to sleep? And if the person says no, the guy says, well, come home to me. Have you had dinner? Right in New Square, if you're if you want a meal, you just go to if you're male. If you're female, different story. But there might be there might be some other places you can go if you're a woman. But at least if you're a man, you can go to the yeshiva and have breakfast, lunch, dinner, no questions asked, anytime. If you're part of the community, not if you're if you look like <laughs> if I just show up like, like you. Hey guys, how you doing? Uh, yeah. Hungry here. Well, that sort of has um, dovetails on my question, which is a lot of what's in this book is it makes it clear how segregated this community is by gender. And a lot of what you deal with as, as you sort of journey away from this community is being a man with a family and kids and a wife and, and that journey. I mean, I'm so interested in how you think it differs for – I know you obviously can't speak to anyone's experience, but for a, a woman who has kids who leaves the community, I mean, is it just so different? Um, I think there are, there are very serious differences. And, and, you know, there have been some other memoirs by by – women who've left the community, and I felt like the, the male perspective was missing, and so I, I wanted to give that. Um, I think it's, it could be more difficult for women. Um, certainly if they have children, it's going to be harder for them to to hold on to their children, hold on to custody. I have many friends who've left who were married and they have children, and they so many of them have just these, go through these absolutely devastating custody battles, and you know, a mother who, who, especially if if her entire identity is is as a mother, or that's the most important part of her identity, and and for many people that is, um, for the community to come together and try to take the children away, which is ha- what happens very very often, uh, that's absolutely devastating. And there was just a, there was a, a fundraiser in Bar Park. Uh, not too long ago, where they raised $90,000 to support the ex-husband of a woman who left with her child. Um, and they were trying to 
get the child away from her, claiming that it was damaging to him because she had a Chinese boyfriend or something like that. Um, and that was something that the Hasidic community just cannot countenance, uh, to have uh, a formerly Hasidic woman raise a formerly Hasidic child with a, a non-Jewish boyfriend, um, especially from a culture they don't know anything about. So that's that's a pretty difficult thing, especially if you're a woman. Let me ask you this. So you've been talking about this book uh, publicly for some time now and, 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 you know, writing about it. I assume you get many questions. What is the sort of most ignorant, infuriating huh. thing you've heard? The the stupidest question. The is stupidest that, is question. That, is that this question? Yes. Um, I, hope this, it's, I hope it's yeah. this one. Yeah. I hope it didn't happen here. <laughs> I will tell you what the stupidest question was. The stupidest question was a woman asked, why did you not write more about your sex life? as a chassid. Um, and the entire crowd booed that question. It turned out that what she was asking was something else. What she was asking, and, and this woman later uh, sent me an email sort of trying to explain where she was coming from, she wanted to understand more about expressions of sexuality within the Hasidic world. And, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. Um, but, it, but at the moment, it sounded really uh, in a, like not not the kind of question that I would. Although in her defense, one of, one of the one of the kind of f- I would say funny to me, <laughs> probably completely terrifying to you, but is is the the lesson uh, which you receive. Do, do you want to talk about this just before your marriage? Sure. I mean, it was intended to be funny, so good. You know, so so that worked. Um, yeah. I mean, it was. Would I say it was terrifying? It wasn't. Well. I guess it was kind of terrifying. This guy is just before the wedding. is It's a sex prep course, and he's talking all about Talmud. And yeah. You're, you're sort of like, come on, get to the point of the mechanics yeah. of so the like, thing. So, like, I and- didn't actually know what sex is. It was three hours before my wedding, and I didn't know what I didn't know what the act was. I knew it involved, you know, private parts of some kind. I, I really had no idea. I knew nothing about uh, anatomy and certainly nothing about female anatomy and this was it was just I was waiting to I thought this course was going to be the thing that's going to tell me all about that and it turns out he spent the first 20 minutes just telling me the rules um, the rules about what to do before and after sex and when you're allowed to have it and when and I was like but what is it <laughs> um, and and it took a long time for him to get to that so that was very frustrating but um, it could be whatever you want it to be <laughs> whatever, yeah, you, whatever, well, whatever you're into a goat I, <laughs> A jar I, of peanut butter? <laughs> just be there and pie. do your thing, right. and that's it. Apple pie. I would, <laughs> your secular education is strong, right, yeah. young right. one. <laughs> hey, when I, when I discovered movies... Um, you went straight you know, for American Pie. Well, I spent like days and days, just like nights, watching like two, three movies a night, um, nonstop. Uh, the so very like first the American thing, college experience. Yeah, I yeah, mean, basically, I wanted... we don't, you know, we don't go to class in college either. You just watch movies. <laughs> we, we smoke weed and watch movies. Yeah. So, well, good. I mean, that's what I missed out on, and yeah. that's what I wanted to sort of catch up on. So, the first movies that I got, and these were on a recommendation from someone who said, who I asked, "What should I get?" I was going to take my car to a video store because I just gotten a computer with a DVD player, and for the first time in my life, I was actually going to go to a video place like a blockbuster. To some of our listeners, those were institutions <laughs> which once upon the time you could go and uh, like you could stream videos uh, straight to a small thing called a DVD and then put them in your never mind yeah you had to actually go to a brick and mortar store and so there was a blockbuster it felt extremely awkward walking into a blockbuster as a chassid um, but I did they knew it. which section you were looking for 
Yeah, I don't. They they really didn't care. That was the thing, you know. <laughs> you walk in with with this real feeling of self consciousness, and the clerk just like, yeah, I see Hasidim in here all the time. Uh, I'm assuming that's what he's thinking. But in any case, I took out Titanic, and Big Daddy. Um, and I thought they were, I thought they were both brilliant. <laughs> and by the way, and, yeah, and you still a bet because if I watch Titanic, I'd be like, whatever I'm in, I'm just staying at that. <laughs> You're not going <laughs> back out. This is a far superior culture. Yeah. Um, is do you feel that the government or secular society has some obligation to help get these children just enough English that if they ever wanted to get out, they could? Yes, absolutely. I, I think you know. For the most part, we, we, we accept that people have religious freedom in this country, right? That's one of the, the foundational values. But we don't say to people, uh, you know, okay, so uh, you can do whatever you want to your kids. You can beat the hell out of them. You can, uh, you know, I mean, their health we and we safety. Don't, we don't say that? <laughs> do we? I don't I, know. I need to uh, I mean, correct some things. When there are health and safety issues, we say, okay, this is something we need to get involved. The government got involved on the Matsitsa Bepe issue, um, which... That's you know, the sucking the blood of just circumcised boys for right. for listeners who haven't been with us every week. Right, and you know that's something that ha- that involved infant deaths. I, I know this might surprise some people. I feel a lot more strongly about the government getting involved on education issues than on the Matitsa Bepe issue. The Matitsa Bepe is something that I think they should stop. Um, I haven't seen the evidence being as conclusive as they claim that this is a real threat. Um, but I, you know, it's problematic. I wish they would stop it. Um, and uh, you know, similarly, the Caparis issue. You know, people like make a big people like make a big deal about that. Um, the chickens, the swung chickens. Yeah, and head. it's another thing that I wish would stop. But education but not, impacts many more people. I think educate. You need a base level of being able to read and write in this country. Otherwise, you will be subjected to. A life of misery. Did um have you have you mastered secular world dating? How's that going? Uh, good question. Maybe yeah. <laughs> Are you with someone right now? How's that going? No, I'm no. single. Okay, you're single. single. Okay. All right. So but, what do you, what do you want? Date? And we'll, we we could get that. We are very powerful people in the uh, Jewish world. People listen to us. They yeah, do as we I'm, tell them. Thousands. I'm trying to think. Maybe I should just like hand out my you know give you my OK Cupid profile. All right. Listen, listen, people. If you're interested in dating Sholem Dean, we're at. We're unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Send pictures. Okay. After we've made a shidduch, we will have you back. We'll have you and your bride back to talk about it. Deal. All right. Thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate it. I was thrilled to be here. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All who go do not return. But <laughs> social media, if you go, <laughs> return. will you return? <laughs> you will I, never I return to will. this experience. Uh, yes. I, I mean, I might have to change the title of my book, but okay. I'll do that for you guys. And now our world-famous feature, Gentile of the Week. Our Gentile this week, a fine specimen of gen- gentility. Are you six foot tall? Yeah. Yeah. Six two. And I'm six. the short one. Yeah. I'm the like, short one in the family. Where you're from, they're all, they're blonder and taller than you. That's right. Jason Gay is a sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal, but that really doesn't capture what he is. He's written for all the glossy magazines we all <laughs> hope to write for, for $3 a word. And he's author of the new book, Little Victories, Perfect Rules for Imperfect Living, which is, it's the kind of guide to living that... If I'd had it, I might have lived better. But now the race, <laughs> but now the race is run. Yeah, it's done for you. It's, it's over. done for Mark. I'm sorry, that's it, it. It got to you too late. Uh, too, how old are you? How old am yeah. I? Yeah. Wow, we're starting there. Of course. Yeah. And how much money do you make? <laughs> as, as you wish. Uh, pick one. Pick I one make, of those two. Uh, Seventeen million dollars a year. That's very good. Yeah. Oh. And you're you're forty. 
45. Okay. Okay. So I have four years to get. But how would I? How do I look? How old do I look to you? Forty-three. You look forty-one. I would have. I would have gone with like a thirty-eight. I couldn't tell you how how old anyone is though. Like there's like this like thirty-five to. 48 range. The that, proper like, answer was 29, in. by the 29. way. But, uh, 29? Uh, well, hold on. Why is 29 the proper? Would you like to be 29 again right now? Would you now? want to look sure. like you're 29? Really? Sure. What I would like 29? Look, I have small children, if we're really going to get into this here. <laughs> I have a, a, a soon-to-be three-year-old and a soon-to-be one-year-old. And I am already doing the you know actuarial tables, and I'm looking at like graduations when I'm 89, and like I wish I had had my children younger. And I wish you I had was those just chil- like... Sorry. And you had those children with just one testicle. <laughs> that's, that's, that's true. That is true. <laughs> yes. Your kids would be twice as old yes. if you'd had I two testicles. I also had a wife. That, yeah, it wasn't just me and the testicle. Right. My, my wife was also. We're really getting into it. We're learning a lot of things here. So we should say the things you learned from this book are like he thinks that, that kiddie sports have gotten too serious. Yeah. He lost a testicle. <laughs> uh, love your friends. Um, it's you know it's 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 basic stuff. I'm moving right into Lance Armstrong's corner. You know he was the guy with the one testicle, you know bestseller franchise, and I'm I'm going after so it. So instead of the bracelet, like what are you gonna do? You know I had the bracelet. Anyone else here have the bracelet? I no, had because the bracelet was now corny. it's really embarrassing to have the bracelet. I was I was I mean in... the bracelet was corny. There were like 50 million Americans had the bracelet. John Kerry was running for president, running around with that bracelet. It was a thing. It was just, it was a little too, too. Like, what were you, the 14 millionth guy to wear the bracelet? You didn't feel a little, you, you, Jason Gay, who wrote the essay about, don't try to be cool. Just talk, yeah. you know what's cool? Not worrying about what you wear. Talking to your mom on the phone. But I didn't realize this until 18 months ago when I wrote the book. Before <laughs> that, there was a solid 43 and a half years of trying to be incredibly cool. All failed. So one of my favorite things about this book is your whole essay about not being cool. And it sort of centers around you being on an airplane with Rihanna yeah. in a private jet yeah. after the MTA. M- the MTA <laughs> Awards, yes. <laughs> it was, it was yeah, she, she won, was peak, she won Subway Award. Announcement of the Year. It was amazing. She, I think the she, most clear yeah. Subway conductor speak. And the best <laughs> masturbating homeless <laughs> award goes to Johnny. Man okay. spreader of the year. <laughs> Everyone. I feel like, are you a manspreader, Leo? I haven't taken a subway in <laughs> seven years. What do I know? He manspreads in many Lincoln Town cars <laughs> and That's SU- actually the Uber place SUVs. Okay, the point of my question, I think, if I was even asking a question, was, like, so you're on this plane with Rihanna and you realize, like, what seems like it should be the most glamorous, cool thing is actually just, like, painfully awkward and insanely uncool. Like, this whole process of, like... Super awkward. So, like, you've interviewed celebrities before, but, like, why was it so important to you to get this, like... To show everyone how non-glamorous that life of of a, of a journal of a celebrity interviewing journalist is, because it's the sort of definition of a story that you would tell and might sound cool out of the box. Okay, I flew on a private jet with Rihanna. You know, I was writing a story for Vogue magazine, and I get on this plane, and the idea is right after the MTV MTA <laughs> awards. Uh, Rihanna and I have this, you know, cross-country interview where she reveals all. And uh, it was nothing like that. And I just wanted to give a very painful account of what actually transpired and how I was sweating out the entire experience and how panicked it was and how, you know, a story that on its face just seems like the definition of cool. I mean, I think I write in there that this is like, not only is this uh, uh, supposed to be cool, but it's sort of being, you know, pumped into the uh, the jet engine of American coolness, you know, a cover story for a magazine. Uh, uh, I never felt cool in the moment. I was completely panicked 
written. And, and just to give you the shorthand explanation of it, you know, I was supposed to sit down there and interview her upon takeoff. She, she decided to eat food and smoke weed. It's okay. No, you know, there was no smoking on the plane. I was disappointed. I was hoping that would happen. You know, you expect a full Bacchanalia, especially after the VMAs or you the thought you, gonna, you thought you were going to dive into a mountain of blow on the plane. Yeah, I mean, like, first of all, like, they have full carte blanche. I don't even think they go through customs. They just, you know, <laughs> land right there in, you know, Fifth Avenue. But it didn't happen. Uh, you know, it just felt like you were on, like, a commuter trip to LaGuardia. You know, it just didn't have that kind of uh, thing. And, and so she blew me off. And I, I want to give the correct dimensions here because, you know, we think of private jets as these extremely spacious things. It's it's not like it's like I'm sitting 10 feet away from her. She's looking straight at me. She's leaning on a bed. It looks like we're kind of in a hospital waiting room. Uh, and and she's looking at her phone, eating Chinese food. And then she goes to sleep. And then I wait sitting there with my eyes wide open for three <laughs> hours waiting for Rihanna to wake up because I know the plane's about to land. And I go to find Rihanna's assistant. She's like, "I'll, uh, I'll, I'll get her for you. Don't worry. Just go back to the back of the plane." And her, then I go her and find bed, her. To be clear, her bed is in the front of the plane. Her bed is in there's one bed. I believe this was a Gulfstream. I don't know which one you have, Leo. I have the four, but hers is probably a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you upgrading? I do the four S <laughs> <laughs> with more touch uh, capabilities um, when it comes out. Yeah, I, I I can't tell you exactly which uh, Gulfstream is, but you know they're 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 cool, but they're not these massive massive aircraft. It's not like getting on a seven thirty seven. Anyway, everyone's asleep on this plane. I'm trying to wake people up, and they're totally disinterested in talking to me. Finally, I am summoned to go to Rihanna's bed, and I sit on the edge of the bed with my tape recorders, holding it up to her. I look like I'm about to read Rihanna Goodnight Moon. Okay, <laughs> she's like staring at me, like she's forgotten completely who I am and why I'm on the aircraft, first of all. And then you have to like do an interview. You can imagine being woken up at 3.30 in the morning and someone's asking you questions about, you know, Chris Brown or or anything. And it just was, it's a very unnatural forced circumstance. And I just wanted to convey how deeply uncool it actually felt in the moment and how I never want to give someone the misimpression you know, because I just feel cool is phony. It's a phony property. And so many man hours, people hours are wasted just on this endeavor. I feel if we just sort of give up, we'll be a little better. We'll be warm instead. So here's here's my question. Um, I pick up this book. It's an amazing book. Couldn't put it down. Read it in one sitting. Thought Thank you. How incredible, you know, incredibly smart and insightful uh, all of your advice are. And then I started thinking... Hold on, I'm 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 a Jew. Um, I don't think that we could reach this level of uh, equipoise. Is the word I'm serenity? looking for? Serenity. Yeah, There's I don't a think kind we of serenity have it in us to, to it. say like, "Oh, geez, call your mom. It's cool." And like, <laughs> calling mom is like a, a battleground. It's very norm core. But he does say like, "Don't tell your mom that it's cool to call your mom." Right, but I think everything about this book has a sort of like you know profound, you know, serenity uh, in it. Well, that is a misrepresentation. Of it is. Like, <laughs> what, what would you say to I, you Jews know, if, who are if, listening if, right now? Who well, want to be a little okay, I'm right like there it. with you. You know, personality-wise, my sort of composure, I'm right there with you. I am someone who feels constant anxiety and panic. And if you're saying that's a characteristic, well, I think this book is something that speaks to you. I don't think it necessarily... I, I hope I don't come off as someone who's found full Zen because I certainly haven't. No, I think I've maybe reached a, a comfort level with my lack of Zen and the sort of underlying message or the overall message of Little Victories is that these sort of 
great life quests that we kind of tout as essential to our human being, you know, whether it's you know, grand achievements like a college graduation or a starting a family or climbing Mount Everest or going to the South Pole, you know, they, they, they're not achievable in the same way that the sort of daily, mundane, almost banal kinds of experiences are. And we should celebrate those things too, whether it's just getting to Starbucks without a line or getting through the airport in less than 35 minutes. I mean, these are things that aren't exactly exciting. And yet, a consistent life of them is what makes real for a good life. And 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 to, to say the same thing from uh from the different uh point of view. I love how you said that. You really know that you're getting over cancer. That you're doing better when you start complaining again about the completely small. You know what? Things. I, I, thank you for mentioning that. You know, there was a woman that I used to work with uh, named Mary who went through it, and she said, you know, you know, when I went through this, this is now like 15 years ago, but. Uh, you keep expecting to have that epiphany of, well, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to, you know, start a scuba shop in the Bahamas, or I'm going to travel the world. And I had none of those kinds of epiphanies. I went right back to my silly job, and I went right back to my silly living, uh, my silly everything. And she said, you know, that's the definition of recovery. It's when you just care about the, can I say crap? When you care about the dumb crap, when you care about the things that annoyed you, the traffic, the congestion, the people online, just all that stuff. When you care about that kind of stuff again, that's recovery. You came with a question for us, right? I did. What, what can what can this panel of Jewish experts tell you? It's a sportsy question. Sweet. Because that's my day job as a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. And we're in the playoffs, the baseball playoffs right now. Mets and Cubs yes, uh, are. are still at it. Uh, and, you know, everyone remembers uh, Sandy Koufax, the great Sandy Koufax decision in the 1965 World Series to skip game one, to not pitch the first game of the World Series because he was celebrating Yom Kippur. And I want to know, you know, because that decision has taken on incredible weight over the years as one of the great acts of courage and and, and sports life. We're an athlete of that stature. I mean, a superstar pitcher. We have a few of them in the playoffs still. To decline a game one start in a World Series, given the just the incredibly contentious, loudmouth, brazen world of sports commentary, what do you think the reaction would be to a Kofaxian decline like that? I mean, so if Bartolo Colon say, I can't pitch because it's like Simchas Torah? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, and, 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 and and let's be clear. And Bartolo, who is still quite a capable pitcher, was, you know, twenty four and three and by far the best pitcher in the sport and was right. basically an automatic win. Rather than looking like me. <laughs> which and is why was, I and love he him. was Jewish. Yeah. He was twenty four and three. I feel bad for Sandy Koufax because it's like do you think he knew that like he was gonna become a verb, like Kofaxing? Like what he did was gonna take on such like superhuman meaning and everything. Why do you like, feel bad for him? I don't that's feel amazing. Bad for him. No, I think that's, that's an insane amount of pressure. Like, if, I think that's a lot of pressure. Person. If someday there was a verb Oppenheimering and it was anything remotely good <laughs> or not, but it outlived. To be. It's that definitely would be, not something. I, yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. I don't, you know, and, and in fact, I, you know, he's going to just garbo it to the end. It's amazing. This guy <laughs> has like led this extraordinary life. Has an argument for being one of the greatest ever, if not the greatest ever, and doesn't talk. Doesn't talk about it at all. He's probably like, I didn't really feel like playing that day. I, like, I feel like there we're going to get to like we've just built this up to be such a symbolic. Well, there's act. great mythology around the day. There's great mythology about the idea and and uh, uh, of what he did because they were in Minneapolis, St. Paul. They were playing the Twins, um, and they ended up losing Game One. But uh, that Koufax went to Temple 
is the is the story that has been out there forever. But Jane Levy, when she wrote her book about him with his agreement a couple years ago, I I believe asserted that she thinks he didn't leave the hotel. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. What would happen if a pitcher, if a Jewish pitcher today, made that decision? On the one hand, you know, what with the internet and all, yeah, there would be, be an some... insane amount of anti-Semitism out there from the fans, from some fans, right? That would be a piece of it. From you, some you, Jewish fans, from from yeah, reformed Jews would be the worst. Like non-observant Jews would be <laughs> would be like, what is this orthodox shit? He's going to cost the Cubs their first ever, you know, or their first World Series in a hundred years. Uh, that would be insane. But then there would be this weird slice of the Christian right that would be like, yeah, yeah, that's right, because yeah. God matters. And you know who knows that? Really, re- really conservative religious people. And he's one of our brothers the way that, you know, evangelicals are are close to God. He's close to God. Yeah, this and would be that a... would be a little piece of it also. And then there would be like just a mass of secular folk who would just have to be educated. And But it would be it would be a really wild narrative with a lot. There'd be a lot of ugliness, which would be the unfortunate thing. And the love would come from some really strange places. This is the tragedy of our time. You know, the, the original Koufax move was this inspiring act that we still talk about. The new Koufax move will be a segment on Fox and Friends. <laughs> but I want to say that, like, I don't think we need a Koufax right now. Like, I think what he did, it was a very, very specific in a context. Like, we were just talking, like, James Franco had a bar mitzvah this weekend and Miley Cyrus was there. Like, I don't think we need that in the same way that when it happened, we Jews needed needed Wait, to see that. But Butnick, and I'm going last name on you because yeah, fine. because we're I'm talking sports. Di- because I'm disagreeing and we're talking sports. Um, maybe I don't think Kovac did it to be symbolic for the Jews, or he might have. But the the good reason to do it would be that he believes that it's a really really sacred day, and you know, pitching on that like, day is 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 not the thing to do. That decision doesn't have the weight now that it does that it did then. Like I don't think that people we need to hear that someone is is choosing to to observe the holidays just because of the state of you know American Jewry. It's so varied and it's so, so it's so consumerized commercialized and debased plus even and also we should be clear that you know Koufax's decision in the moment was also you know it was relatively controversial it wasn't you know a kind of crazy social media brouhaha we'd have today but it was not as if people just said, oh great fine uh it was you know there was some backlash to it uh however not really on his team the team kind of supported the decision he pitched game two lost i mean he really put them on the back foot which is amazing and then it ended up if everybody wants to hear the sporty part, uh, won game five and then pitched on two days rest, shut out Twins, game seven, MVP of the World Series. So it had an incredible happy ending, which I think contributes to the context of this, <laughs> right. too. Is that people say, oh, well, it didn't end up mattering in long. The Twins sweep the series. I don't know. Maybe history right. views it differently. Goddamn Jew. Uh, <laughs> Goddamn <laughs> Jew. Fucking Jew. <laughs> Fucking Los Angeles in the series. Uh, or was the... it Brooklyn then? It was Los Angeles. Right? LA, yeah. LA, yeah. Here's the other thing, though. I think like with, with the with the advent of, you know, saber metrics and all the, the big data baseball, some kid in the back office would probably be like, well, you know, there's a 32.6% chance that you're going to hell anyway. So actually they're going to Shul thing. No, but he's like, going to would... go to Shul that day and then they're going to lose. The right, guy in like yeah. the... The, oh, that guy's. <laughs> it would end up. Some, so the tragedy of baseball like, isn't the star pitcher; guy. it's the stats guy going to show at Yom Kippur. The stats guy we try to figure out does it give the next pitcher a hot hand? And then yeah, and then we lost. <laughs> well, we have to wrap this up so we can all go home and curl up with our cats and read your book again. Thank you. But thank you for coming, Jason Gay. I will see you all at the 2015 <laughs> MTA Awards. MTA Awards, absolutely. <laughs>
Before we go, our Mazel Tovs of the week. I'll go first. I wish to uh, say Mazel Tov to Sid and Mark Oppenheimer, uh, a very freiliche tenth uh, uh, wedding anniversary. Oh, vielen Dank. Thank you. That's uh, it, it's been a good ten- we we re-upped. That's what we do. for anniversary. We went to Chipotle, and then to see the touring show of the Book of Mormon. And then we decide to re-up for another 10. And dear listeners, if you've been married for 10 years or more and do not have four kids, two dogs, and a cat... That lives in the basement. You're you're doing it wrong. My Mazel Tov this week is for the staff of Tablet Magazine, who um, we are closing the first issue of our brand new print magazine, which is amazing and has some incredible stuff. And you can subscribe to it by texting tablet to 66866 on your smartphone or even your flip phone. My Mazel Tov this week is to the Cubs... I haven't followed baseball since I was 14, although I popped back in when the Yankees were doing well again in the mid-90s. But um, I was living in New England when the Red Sox finally did it. And I just have a cautionary note for the Cubs fans. I'm happy for you, but please recognize that you be careful what you wish for because your whole raison d'etre, the whole purpose of your existence has been winning the World Series. If you win it, um, you got to find a new purpose. Like marriages end over the fact that you can no longer... Uh, it's no longer a safe out that you're going to go on your alcoholic, adulterous bender for a week every year when the Cubs are eliminated from the playoffs or don't make it or mathematically disqualified. So you, you have to be ready for the day after is all I'm saying. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Magazine, produced by Julie Subrin, with really, really swell assistance from Sarah Ivory. Our rabbinic supervision this week is from Rabbi Jordi Gerson in San Diego. Our website is tabletmag.com. You can subscribe to our print magazine there, too. And our music is by Golem. To get our newsletter, shoot an email to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and just say, hey, add me to your newsletter list. Tov yalla bye. We'll see you next week. <laughs>